Well, good morning. It's good to be back. It's the longest, uh, longest break that uh, I've had uh, from the pulpit and uh, then uh, had the opportunity to uh, fill in the last two weeks at Grace Bible Church and to, to be an encouragement to them. And uh, I appreciate you letting me uh, go and do that. And uh, today we have uh, another one of our own uh, preaching there. Josue Valdez is uh, bringing the word at Grace Bible Church uh, uh, this morning. And I want you to know this has been an awesome time uh, for their teaching pastor to take some time off. First vacation uh, he's taken in five years. And uh, we are uh, uh, so excited to help him out in that way. And uh, he's got a couple more weeks out of the the pulpit, and uh, we even got uh, Professor Michael Quick heading over to Grace uh, in the next couple weeks as well. So it's been an honor to uh, help serve them uh, in that way. And uh, but it's good to be back, and uh, want you to know that we're going to be back right into a, a series starting next week. Uh, I want you to be looking forward to our second uh, year, looking at a chapter of Romans. We'll be looking at Romans chapter two. I told you that over the next sixteen years. We will take one chapter a year, and I know some of our more mature and older uh, folks say, I hope I'm still around in 16 years. Well, you've made it to year two, and I can tell you what, if you don't make it all the way to year 16, when you get to heaven, go talk to the Apostle Paul and get it from the horse's mouth, okay? You'd far rather get it from him than you would me. But we are going to be looking at Romans chapter 2, and the name of that series is entitled Hypocrite. And the reason why it's entitled Hypocrite is because Paul turns his focus. Remember Romans chapter 1 last year? We talked about things um, that many times would be unspeakable in churches. The sins that uh, we as uh, heathens in our uh, fallen state have fallen to as a result of sin. And yet Paul at the end of uh, Romans chapter 1 and into Romans chapter 2 turns his argument to those who say, I'm glad I don't do such things. I'm glad that I um, don't sin like that. And Paul says, you, even the one who seems to be doing so much good, you are under sin as well and under the judgment of God. So I would encourage you to look at Romans chapter 2 this week. So we are going to look at the subject of the sanctity of life. And uh, before I do that, I want us to go again to prayer uh, as we ask for God's blessing in our time uh, in His Word. Father God, we come before You. Uh, Lord, uh, we speak today on a subject uh, that is uh, huge in our world. Uh, Lord, uh, for some reason, we have turned away from the life giver and we have become those who destroy life. Lord, forgive us of that. Forgive us of our um, disregard uh, for those whom you've created. And Lord, it starts with the unborn, uh, but Lord, it even goes to the elderly uh, in our world today. Lord, you've called us as believers to be different than that of those in the world. You've called us to love and not hate. You've called us to promote life and not create death. Uh, but Lord, it, it is tough. The tide of public opinion seems to be waning, and Lord, we need your strength, we need your encouragement, we need your provision now more than ever before. Lord, let us keep our eyes on the prize. Let us keep our eyes and our focus on the fight that you would have for us. 
Lord, that when uh, people here um, are promoting of life, they would not see a political agenda. They would not see a uh, pursuit or a proclamation of one political party or another, but that they would see you and you alone. For, Lord, we are a part of your party. We are a part of your family. And, Lord, we know where you speak so clearly on the subject, from the womb to the tomb, that we should promote life. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would give me clarity of thought, that you would allow uh, your spirit to move in this place in a new and profound way. And as Pastor Scott said, Lord, that you would send us out, not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of it as well. So give us opportunities uh, to promote life in all facets of the world around us. We give you the honor and glory for all that is said and done this morning. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Open your Bibles. Um, we're going to be uh, starting in the book of John this morning. It's going to be a little different than what we normally uh, do. Usually I take a particular text and work through uh, a couple verses, but today we're going to be uh, all around uh, the Bible. We're going to be starting in the book of John. But I want you to know that the sanctity of life is at the heart, is the heart issue of God. It's at the very heart of who our God is. We must understand when we talk about life, we are speaking about God, for there is no life apart from God. And so if we want to speak about the sanctity, the preciousness, the value of life, then we must understand that the value of life comes from God and God alone. When Abraham Lincoln uh, began to uh, fight the abolitionist fight to end slavery, as a president, he spoke about the intrinsic nature of a human being. And he didn't base it on the complexity of who we are or the achievements of what we've accomplished. What he would speak about is that we have the right to promote life and to pursue life because we are endowed by our Creator with certain rights and gifts. And so when we speak about life, we must understand that in promoting life, we are not promoting an anthropology, uh, this idea or study of human beings, but we are promoting the very nature of our creating, our creating God, our creator God, the one who uh, not only created us, but sustains us, the one who gives us everything that we need for life. So when you hear about the sanctity of life, we are worshiping God, the creator of that life. The creator of the life that now that we breathe, the, the, breath, the breath that we take, the life that we hold in our hands and our children, the lives that we uh, love to visit with and, uh, and to hear from when it comes to grandparents and those of the elderly. But you know, the amazing thing about the sanctity of life is, is that when we study the sanctity of life, we look at something far more elaborate than we do at the plant and animal kingdom. You know, in our world today, especially here in America, there seems to be such a pursuit to sanctify and to keep the sanctity of our world, the earth, and the animals within it. You know, we've got endangered species, we've got endangered plants, and we say that those things are important. And yes, they are. It is important for us to take care of our world. It is important for us to be kind to the created animals of this world. But understand something. When you read Genesis chapter 1, you do not see God elevating plant and animal life. 
for he said it was good. But when he created humanity, man and woman, male and female, he said it was very good. Why would he say that? Because I believe with all my heart, no matter what uh, different political action groups say, that humanity is the pinnacle of all creation and that we should uh, raise that up above any other pursuit, as noble as they may be, that as God did, so should we, that we should be promoters of human life above all others. But you know what? Even though you would think that that would be easy for us as a nation and as a world uh, to be about, I mean, how can you not be a promoter of life? How can you not um, be one who, who f- finds the awe and the amazement of looking in the eyes of a little one or seeing the life that is lived before you? We are fearfully and wonderfully made, the Scripture says. Why doesn't the world see that? The problem is, is that many times in our world, they have pursued sin as a result of that it has brought forth death. Remember what takes place. A generation after sin enters the world, Adam and Eve have eaten of the forbidden fruit of the tree that they were not supposed to uh, eat from, and uh, there is spiritual death. They are cast out of the garden. They are given clothing because of their shame of sin. And as a result of that, they begin to go on with their life. They have Abel and they have Cain, two boys. The joy that must have come from Adam and Eve. Though they were kicked out of the garden, God was giving them this grace, an opportunity to be fruitful and multiply. But that grace would not stay for long. Because as a result of sin, something would take place. And as a result of sin in the world... Cain would look at his brother, not with the natural affection of love and mercy and grace, but of jealousy and selfishness. And he would turn on his brother, and we know the story, that Cain would spill the blood of his brother Abel. And from that moment on, my friends, from the beginning of Genesis, we as a people find ourselves living in a culture of death. We live in a culture of death. Now, why is it that death is such a big thing in our lives? It's because of sin. In fact, Romans chapter 1, verse 31 says that humanity is senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. It's no wonder we turn on the TV and then we read in the newspapers these horrific things that take place. I looked at the major newspaper headlines of this week, uh, one from the East Coast, one from uh, the north central part of the country, one down south, and one on the West Coast. And I read things like, newborn baby is placed in garbage dumpster to die. Family uh, loses a loved one and does not report the loss of that loved one, an elderly individual, for over 40 days. The person suffered from Alzheimer's, and a family would not report the loss of a grandparent for 40-some days. We have murders going on. In fact, uh, this last year in Chicago alone, over 650 murders took place only an hour away from here. We live in a world that is filled with a culture of death. The New York Times, a secular publication, says that uh, just recently, in fact in November, that there is a resurgence of our love and pursuit of things that involve murder and death. 
In fact, they were talking about uh, the new resurgence to vampire films and the pursuit of uh, seeing gore as a result of it. What is it about death? What is it about the taking of life that we seem to have such an infatuation with? I will tell you, because of the world that we live in, it's important for us to have days like this. So today we celebrate not the culture of death, but the sanctity of life. I want us to uh, read together at the top of your outlines what I have written down. I want us to read it together as a pledge, if you will. And this is what it says. So read it out loud with me. It is the duty of every Christian to provide for the orphaned, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, the sick, We should both speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. That is what the sanctity of life is all about. Now, of course, much of the emphasis and focus gets placed on abortion, and I believe rightly so. That's an issue that we'll talk about this morning. But it involves more than that. If we want to promote the sanctity of life, if we want to be pro-life Christians, that it involves just not just the unborn, but it involves from conception to natural death. And so I want to look at what it means to be a pro-life Christian this morning. So take out your outlines if you've got it, and let's start looking at God's Word this morning. What does it mean to be a pro-life Christian? Well, it involves three things. The first thing it involves is exalting the preeminence of our Lord. It involves exalting the preeminence of our Lord. Now, in John chapter 8, verse 44, we are told that there is a dichotomy between good and evil. There's a dichotomy between God and the devil. The Bible makes it abundantly clear in John 8, 44, that the devil is a murderer. He hates life. The Bible says uh, later in John chapter 10, speaking of the thief that comes to only steal and destroy But Jesus said in John 10.10, But I have come that you may have life, because I am the resurrection and the life. Understand, there is because of the the, uh, dynamics in the spiritual realm, we see it being manifested in the human realm. Why is there a culture of death? Why is there this fight between those who promote life and those who uh, seem to be okay with the pursuit of death? The reason why is that many have been blinded by the devil. We've been blinded by the devil. So how do we begin to be those who promote life? It begins by exalting the preeminence of our Lord. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to James chapter 4 for just a quick second. James chapter 4. Why is it so important? You would say, why, why do we start there? Why do we start uh, talking about the preeminence of Christ and, and, and how important He is and the place that He should have in our lives? Well, James is going to tell us that if we don't have that right, then there's going to be a problem. James chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. This is what it says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. 
Now when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may uh, spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. God is, uh, J- uh, James establishes in God's word that there is uh, two sides that you can be on. One side is with God, elevating God to where he is and promoting all that God promotes. The other side is, is those that will follow the ways of the evil one who will uh, do whatever they have to to promote the pleasures and the pursuits of their life. And so what does exalting the preeminence involve? If we don't put God in our proper place, then we will pursue the things of this world. If we don't exalt Christ to where he is at the throne of God himself, then we will fall to sin. Now notice what happens when we don't follow the ways of the Lord and exalt him as we should. Notice what it says in verse 1. There comes strife. Write that down. If we don't uh, put the proper place for Christ in our lives, then there will be strife. Look at verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? It doesn't take you long to look in our world and see strife. We've just seen the end of a major um, conflict between uh, the Israelis and uh, the Palestinians and, and the Arabs. And so we see that going on. We hear about conflict in India and Pakistan. Of course, we know that there's strife that we ourselves as a nation are involved in two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We can see strife in our uh, morning papers. We see strife even in our families. When we don't put God in his proper place, my friends, there will be war and there will be strife. But notice why that takes place. What, what causes this strife? Well, the next thing that uh, James says is because of selfishness. Look at what he says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? Well, what's the battle, James? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. What's the issue? The reason why we uh, find ourselves in times of strife, it doesn't take long. If you want to see the reason why strife begins, come to the Badal house. Watch my six-year-old and my three-year-old in action. They want something. They can't have it. Older brother has something younger brother wants. Younger brother is doing something that older brother wants to do. What takes place? I can assure you it's not a fairy tale ending that they live happily ever after. There is strife and war. And just like those two little boys in my family, when we take our eyes off of God, then we've got a problem. Strife begins, and it begins as a result of selfishness. Many times the reason why we promote other things other than God and life is because of the selfish desires in our heart. It's not convenient for us. It's not what we want. And so the Bible says that we kill and we covet because we cannot have what we want. So how do we fix it? How do we fix it? Well, James goes on. Look at verse 7. Here is the answer. We want to promote uh, the good. We want to promote what is biblical. Then he says in verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God. The only thing that we can do to alleviate strife and selfishness in our world and even in our own lives is submission to God. 
What it means is, is if we want to be promoters of life, if we want to be promoters of what is good and what is wholesome, if we want to be promoters of others, then we must, propo- uh, we must be those who promote our own submission to God. Notice what it involves. He says, submit yourselves to God. Put yourself in the proper rank. That's what it means in the original language there. Then resist the devil. Why would we resist the devil? Because the devil is going to say, just as he did in the garden, hey, you can do what you want. You want that certain thing? Then you go get it. You deserve it. You don't need to worry about anybody else. Worry about number one. That's who's most important. We need to resist that. And it says he'll flee from us. We need to come near to God, and he will come near to us. It involves washing our hands. It involves grieving, mourning, and wailing. Humbling ourselves before the Lord. If we want to have a right focus on every aspect of life, then it means we've got to get the foundation right. Think about it for a moment. If you were to call me to build you a house, and you said, well, Tim, what would be the first thing you would do? I would tell you I'm not very good at building, but I would tell you that you've got to dig a hole and you've got to lay a foundation. And so I say, well, I've seen some people do that, and uh, I'll try to make it happen. Now, if I don't get that foundation right, I don't care how beautiful the house is above it and the amount of money that is spent. If that foundation is crooked, every aspect of life that is built upon that foundation will be crooked as well. The reason why we have a culture of death, my friends, the reason why we see the wars and the strife and the genocide and the abuse taking place in our world is because our foundation is not on Christ Jesus. It's not on him. And until we get the world there, until we promote that type of foundation, we will struggle with the things that destroy life every day. It involves getting our relationship right first. Second thing we see this morning, if we get our relationship right with God, put the preeminence where it needs to be, not on self, but on our Savior, the second thing we must do as a pro-life Christian is be involved in embracing, embracing a priority for all of life. We need to be embracing a priority of life. Now, once we have gotten our relationship with God right, and that's a big one, because if our relationship isn't right with God, then I'll tell you what, we have no right to talk about whether we're pro this or pro that. We got to get our relationship right before we can even communicate that. But once we've done that, we've submitted to God, resisted the devil, come near to God, grieved, mourned, and wailed over our sin, then it involves embracing something, a priority of life. Well, what are they? What are the priorities that we should have in our life in regards to other aspects of life in our world? There are four that I want to look at this morning. And the first one that I see of the four greatest needs when it comes to a priority of life is that of the unborn. That of the unborn. I will tell you that in America, my belief is that abortion is one of the greatest plagues that we've had in our history. It is a plague that is up there with slavery. Because what it does is it comes from a flawed thinking that I am more important than someone else. Abortion is like slavery for the very fact that it is more important that I take care of myself at the expense of someone else. 
Now remember this. When slavery was being talked about, the whole aspect of slavery was is that slavery and even racial hatred that we have seen throughout America's history involves this correlation. It involves the elevation of one over the other. Now how do you do that? How can I say I'm better than you? By saying that you are not truly human. Now think about that for a moment. A, I love history. I study history. And I'm reading right now a uh, massive uh, biography on Benjamin Franklin. And they were talking about the issue of slavery when the uh, Continental Congress was meeting in the 1770s. And the question of slavery came up. And many from the South said, how can there be unalienable rights for non-human creatures? And who was he speaking of? Dogs and cats? No, he was speaking of African Americans and saying they're not truly human. Let me tell you something. That same thinking takes place in the abortion argument today. That fetus is just a fetus. It's just a mass of tissue and, and molecules. It really isn't a human we have learned what slavery and racial hatred has done by promoting one over the other. And we are learning the lesson slowly. And I will tell you, we will not see true blessing from God until we begin to reduce all and, and eradicate all aspects of saying that I'm better than someone else. The Bible says that we ought not look higher on ourselves or more of ourselves than we ought to. It means a devaluing of self and a promotion of others. I want to give you some aspects of, of this uh, plague of abortion. As you've seen, uh, I won't read all of them. Many of them were put up on the screen. Uh, more than 42 million abortions take place worldwide. It's 115,000 per day. 1.37 million in 2003 abortions took place. Now, who's having these abortions? You would say, well, they're uh, individuals who aren't a part of churches. Let me tell you that 37% of all abortions are done by Protestant women, 31% Catholic. Of 18% uh, of all abortions, listen to this, are uh, performed on women who identify themselves as born-again evangelical Christians. This isn't an issue, my friends, that uh, we fight as spectators but this is an issue that plagues the hearts of women in our own churches. Is it a forgivable thing? Absolutely. Is it something that we can grow and move away from? Absolutely. But it's something we as a church have to speak on. According to Planned Parenthood, 1% of all abortions occur because of rape and incest. 6% of abortions occur because of potential health hazards. 93% of all abortions occur mostly for social reasons. When are they done? 52% of all abortions occur before the ninth week. 25% happen between the ninth and the twelfth week. Uh, after the twelfth week, six, uh, I'm sorry, 12% uh, after the twelfth week, 6% after the fifteenth week, and 4% of all abortions, it says according to Planned Parenthood, happen after the twentieth week of gestation. What does that mean? 65,000 babies a year are aborted after the 20th week. The likelihood of abortion, you say, well, it'll never happen to me. 44% right now, Planned Parenthood says, according to 2008 numbers, they said 44% of women, all women, will have an abortion before, the year, before they turn 40 years of age. 
It's an ep- it's a, it is a disaster of epic proportion. So what are we to say on this? Is it, a, is it the worst sin? No, all sin is, is, is bad in the eyes of God, equally bad. But the Scripture is clear. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139 for a moment. Psalm 139. This was read during our worship time, but it's something that we need to focus in on. Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14. David is giving praise and glory to God, and this is what he says of his Creator God. He says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Listen to the words. Write this passage down. Psalm 22. Psalm 22, uh, verse 9 and 10. Listen to what is uh, said again. A psalm of David. Psalm 22, verse 9 and 10. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. God loves the unborn. God is knitting and nurturing and taking care of those in the womb. I think of one of the greatest prophecies and one of the greatest prophets of our day that would ever be fulfilled is the coming of John the Baptist. And John didn't get started in his early 20s. John didn't even get started in his teens when it came to his ministry of being the forerunner of Christ. He didn't start as an elementary school individual. But as Mary walks into the home of Elizabeth, John the Baptist, how old is he? He's not even born yet. And at the voice of Mary, the Bible says that John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb. Is there life? You better believe it. Is there life in the womb? Well, God says there is. He used it to be a wonderful encouragement to our uh, Savior's mother. The world has tried to get rid of uh, babies if they've been unwanted for many times. The Bible speaks of it. Exodus chapter 1. If, if uh, the world would have had its way, we would have had no Moses. Matthew chapter 2, if Herod had gotten his way, we would have not known Jesus. It involves the unborn. We need to speak against it. The next one is, is we need to speak against and help those. Uh, I'm sorry, we need to uh, help those who are underprivileged. Not just the unborn, but the underprivileged. Those that are lacking opportunities or advantages enjoyed by others Uh, members of one community who are deprived. Well, where do we see this underprivileged life taking place? We see it in the times of starvation, homelessness, disease, and poverty. The World Bank tells us that one billion people on earth today live on less than $1.25 for their needs. For those in developing countries, such Absolute poverty is involving meager existence. It's been said that in Haiti, there are many people who find themselves so hungry that they will eat patties of mud. We need to help those that are underprivileged. Today, an estimated 40,000 children, today, as we sit in our nice clothes in a nice church, 40,000 children will die of hunger and hunger-related diseases. Within a year, malaria will claim the lives of more than one million children. As a result of the AIDS epidemic, 
In Africa, there are now today 11.6 million AIDS orphans. An estimated uh, 100 million people in 2007 were known to be homeless. It's not just to help the unborn, my friends. It is to help those who need our help. The Bible makes it abundantly clear, just as it does, that we should speak out and promote life of the unborn, that we too should promote the life of those who are struggling. We are told in James chapter 1, verse 27, that if you want to have true and real religion, then we must look after the orphans and widows in their distress. The job of the church is to look after those that are hurting. One of the greatest stories that are ever told in the Bible that we've studied not too long ago is the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth tells us about a young widow who comes back with her older mother-in-law and they come back with nothing left. They've got nothing. And Boaz, a good and righteous man, says you can work off our field to make sure you have your needs met. We need to make sure that we uh, look after those orphans and widows in their distress. We can't say we've got a true faith. We can't say that we've got a church that's on fire for the Lord if we do not look after the orphans and widows in their distress. But we must not forget the elderly. How about the elderly? Every year, an estimated 2.1 million older Americans are victims of physical, psychological, sexual, and all their forms of abuse and neglect. I will tell you this, with the retiring of our baby boomers, millions of our loved ones will need to receive care from someone else. And experts say that this is the only the beginning of an uh, of epic proportion of abuse that will take place because of the compromised state. Today, sitting in nursing homes, sitting in homes of squalor, there are elderly people who have uh, gone before us, who have fought wars on our behalf, who have uh, paid for the things that we are able to enjoy today, who find themselves destitute as a result of not being cared for. Sanctity of life involves the unborn. It involves the underprivileged. It also involves taking care of the elderly. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that not only are we to take care of those who are in our family, the Bible says if a man doesn't take care of his own family, that he's worse than a pagan. He's the low of lows. But the Bible also tells us that we are to respect and honor those who are older than us. The Bible says even if we argue with an older man, we are to treat him as our father with honor and respect. Can we as a church say that we've done that when it comes to the elderly in our own family, to the elderly that are in the care of facilities nearby? We need to be pursuing, uh, promoting life amongst our elderly brothers and sisters. How about the exploited? This involves genocide. This involves uh, human slavery. In the area of genocide, 15 years ago, the world failed to stop the massacre of more than, listen to me, 800,000 people in Rwanda. 800,000 lost their life. And yet, what's going on today in Sudan, Chad, the Congo, the northern parts of Uganda, and throughout the Horn of Africa, similar stories of genocide are taking place. We want to be promoters of life, then we have to speak truthfully and biblically about the exploited. Man-made suffering. Men thinking they're better than others and destroying lives. We've heard stories about that. We've heard the stories of some of our own. 
the Duna family from Liberia, who ran for their life as a result of genocide that was taking place. How about human slavery? 30 million victims are a part of the modern-day slave movement in the world today. 30 million. Each year, it's estimated that 1 million more victims are placed into human trafficking. That's according to the Department of State. Now listen to what it says. 80% of those that are being trafficked, trafficked, uh, trafficked, or whatever the word would be, are, uh, are women. 50% are children. Now listen to what happens. One in seven teenagers in the United States run away from home. Most of them are girls. Living on the street, one out of every three teens will be lured into prostitution within 48 hours of leaving home. That's not in some far-off land. That's here in America. We want to be promoters of life. We want to be promoters of what God says. It involves promoting the life of the unborn, the underprivileged, the elderly, and the exploited. We are not a one-trick pony. We are not a one-hit wonder when it comes to our focus as a church. It involves looking at all of them. So what are we to do? The Bible makes it very clear in James chapter 4, verse 17, that if a man knows what is right and does not do it, in that he sins. If we sit back and we say, well, I know that there's a lot of problems. I know that abortion is, is a huge issue. I know that there are people that are underprivileged. I know that the elderly need our help. I know that the Bible says we should speak on behalf of the exploited to take care of others as we would want taken care of, that we would treat others as uh, ourselves. If the Lord says all that and we sit back and say, Tim, that was a good message, a lot of good statistics, and uh, I'll think about it. The Bible says if we don't do something about it, in that response, we sin. We know what is right. We know what the Scripture says. So what do we do? Well, I know it's difficult to respond. It's difficult to respond because many of these issues are political ones. And so my last point I want to look at is engaging biblically within the political landscape. What do we do? If these things are so political, how do we respond? How do we respond in a way that seems so complicated? Well, I've got three things I want to close with. The first thing that we must do in any response that we have in regards to the sanctity of life is it must be measured by God's Word. It must be measured by God's Word. This nonsense that uh, a Christian can say they'll blow up an abortion clinic and, and hurt and even kill lives to save the unborn is idiotic and it's from the pit and smells like smoke. We cannot hate and talk about promoting life. We cannot talk about promoting life and have racism in our heart. We cannot talk about promoting life and mocking those who need our help. We can't do that. So it must be measured by God's Word. And it begins, first of all, by proclaiming Christ to the nations. The first thing that we must do, Erwin Lutzer said, don't, don't think that politics can do what only the cross can do. If you think that you're going to fix these errors and these issues in the world through politics, you are wrong. The only help to the unborn, the only help to the underprivileged, to the elderly and to the exploited is not whether the Republicans or Democrats are in power, but it is when the church of the living God stands up and begins to promote the life giver 
deliver Jesus Christ to the world around them. It is taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world that needs it. Our world doesn't just need physical help, but the reason why they suffer the physical issues that they do is because of sin. And only Jesus Christ can take care of our sins. And it begins by proclaiming Christ to the nations. Are you doing that? Are you promoting life? Think about it. Evangelism is one of the greatest pro-life things. The Bible says that if an individual uh, does not know Christ, they will end their life in hell, a place of eternal judgment and torture and torment. And so what does that mean? When we promote life, we tell them, choose life. Choose life. We're not speaking of a political issue. We're talking about evangelism. Choose life. Understand that the cross can do what politics can't. But there's also another element. It involves praying and petitioning your civic leaders. It involves praying for and petitioning your civic leaders. We live in a country that says we have the right to petition our leaders. But I will tell you, until you can pray for your president and vice president and congressmen and senators and your state uh, governors and your uh, state legislature and, and the ones that work in your county and the ones that work in your city, before you petition them in any way, I want you to ask the question, have I prayed for them? First Timothy chapter uh, 2 says that we are to pray for kings and all those in authority over us. Before you say anything bad about a politician, before you begin to start exercising your right to tell them the peace of your mind, you pray for them. Before you use your mouth, get on your knees and pray for them. But if you disagree with where they're at, then you petition them. If you disagree with what they're doing, then you protest it. You protest it according to biblical means. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. We live in a country that has given us that right. And so when uh, one of our politicians does something that does not promote life, we should respond. We should allow our uh, uh, politicians and civic leaders to know that. Now I want to, uh, because of, of this uh, important week in our uh, nation's history, the transfer of power, this whole last year has been very politicized. And I want to speak to both sides of the aisle. I want the right to remember something. That abortion isn't the only dreadful thing that is taking place in our world. It is a dreadful thing, but it's not the only one. We can't just elevate one aspect of death and not the other. If we want to be pro-life, we must be pro-life across the board. But I also want to speak to those on the left. And I want to tell you that if you are on the left, that's all right. I think you can be a Christian and be on the left. I think you can be a Christian on the right. It's those independents I get worried about. <laughs> but let me tell you on the left, it's understood that you work and, and pursue the lives of those that are underprivileged and those that are in need of help in our country and far off. But when it comes to the issue of abortion, I know you love your uh, people on your left and on your right, but speak out on abortion. Our president, I believe, is a man that God has placed in, into uh, authority of, above us. We should respect him. We should honor him. But I will tell you, I don't like where he is going when it comes to the issue of abortion. Pray for him. Pray for our congressmen. Pray for them. 
But don't just do it when it comes to abortion, my friends. There are people hurting in this world. And don't allow any pursuit of any kind of evil to be left alone by the church. When it comes to hearing that elder care is falling apart, we need to be those that will be proponents of it. When it comes to the genocide and the issues that are going on, please don't say that as some skirmish that is happening with a bunch of ragheads in the Middle East, but you say they are created in the image of God and we will do all that we can to supersede every political uh, agenda and take care of the needs of our brothers and sisters of humanity. We need to promote life. Finally, we need to be involved in promoting initiatives that support life. Let me close with this. I am so thankful. I live and I am a part of a church that promotes life. We learned about some women that are serving at PIC, helping the unborn. We have families that are fostering and adopting children into our church. We are pro-life when it comes to the unborn. We are pro-life when it comes to the underprivileged. Over 40 children were brought into our loving hands through the Ministry of Compassion International. Over 142 boxes, this is just at Village Bible Church, 142 boxes of gifts and supplies were given through Operation Christmas Child. We've partnered with Wayside Cross and LifeSpring Ministries to help the homeless and the hurting. We have visited nursing homes and collected items for an elderly care facility that Linda Todd was a part of. We've collected money to help refugees in Liberia. We've spoken of the ills and supported uh, relief to people in Darfur. We have prayed for the end of violence in Africa. We even give and support on a monthly basis a AIDS orphanage in Uganda by the Keens to help children in their time of need. We have, benefited, we have done benefit parties to help promote the work of the well and servant works in Thailand to help save women from prostitution and the sex trade. We've done much, but I will tell you, we haven't done enough. It is our time. It is our place as a family of God, as those who stand under the banner of Calvary's cross for us to stand and to help in the area of promoting life in every way. We have a lot of resources. Even in a time of recession, we have many resources. One study once said that if American Christians gave a faithful tithe of 10%, we could fund missionaries in every part of the world, prevent the deaths of 29,000 children under the age of five every day, and provide elementary education across the globe. We would tackle domestic poverty, and we would still have in our pockets $150 billion every year if we would just give 10%. We've done a lot, but we can do more. You think that this is not that important? You say, Tim, we need to get into our series. Understand that Jesus says this as I close. Matthew chapter 25. He says this as he's speaking about the separating of those in Christ and those who are not. And this is what he says. Not my words, but Christ Jesus. Listen to these words. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Why? 
For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Now the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Where did we see you needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king wrote, Pi, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. We don't do this to raise our acclaim. We don't do this to say, look at all the great things we do. We do it because Christ has commanded us to do it. And when we do it to our brothers and sisters, we do it unto him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we speak to you as the great King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, we have made a mess of this world that you've given us. We have taken the very things that you've created and we've destroyed them by war, by selfish pursuits, by national interests. Because it doesn't work in our agendas, Lord. The Bible says, your word says, that we covet and we kill. Oh, Lord, shape our hearts this morning to be people who move away from that, to promote life in every way. Father, I pray that you would speak to us in a powerful way and speak to us that would move our feet and move our hands to serve you in this way. What we do for the least of those, we've done unto you. And so, Lord, let that be our motivation. Lord, for us, I pray you would forgive us of our uh, lack of desire, that you would forgive us of our lack of involvement. But today, let it be a chapter mark in our lives that we'll never be the same and that we will promote what you promote and we will uh, call out what you call out and we will stand against what you stand against. And Lord, we won't do it because politics tell us to. We'll do it because your word says. But Lord, give us grace and mercy to know that we must be like Christ in every aspect, whether it's praying or protesting, whether it's feeding or giving. Lord, that we would do it with grace in our hearts, knowing that you have given us so much and out of gratitude that we can give to others. Be with those that find themselves in the situations that have been spoken about. To the mother who's contemplating abortion, Lord, give her grace and mercy to choose life. To those that are uh, finding themselves in times of starvation, in times of struggle, Lord, that you would move in the hearts of people to give abundantly, to give them the help that they need even today. For our elderly in nursing homes and in hospitals all around this world, Lord, that we would respect and honor them as you honored your own father. Lord, I pray that we would do all that we can in that. And Lord, that we would help those that are exploited the strife and the struggles of this world that have hurt millions of people and brought death and devastation, Lord, that you would use us in a powerful way to be there in their time of greatest need. Lord, we do this because we love you and because you've done so much for us. And we thank you and praise you in your name. Amen.